word that he would teach us. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Kings chapter 4. Second Kings 4, and we'll read verses 1 through 7. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me. What have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons, and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Let's also turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 8, and we'll read verses 22 through 25. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and, they sa- and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Let's also jump a few verses forward to verse 40, and we'll read verses 40 through 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a ruler, there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had He had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? 
When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 146, stanzas 3, 4, and 5. Paying special attention this morning is 2 Kings chapter 4, the verses 1 through 7, the story of the widow and the jars of oil. We won't read that again now, but you may be helped by having your Bibles open. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we considered a few weeks ago, uh, when we first stepped into Elisha's ministry, we considered the fact how uh, Elisha is a prefiguring or a foreshadowing of Christ. If you remember, uh, John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to come, which means that Jesus Christ is the Elisha who is to come. And Elisha, so then, Elisha, even more than Elijah, shows us what the ministry of Jesus will be like. Teaches, he taught the Jews by his ministry what kind of Savior to expect. And as we look back on him now, we can see reflections of our Savior in him. And that's what we especially want to do this morning And so we want to recognize Elisha's ministry deserves our attention as teaching us about the ministry of Christ. And one of the ways this is especially true is because Elisha's ministry, unlike Elijah's, is not nearly as much a public ministry. Uh, Many people know the stories of Elijah's ministry, the way he publicly confronted the kings of Israel, or you think of him on on Mount Carmel with all of Israel assembled there and fire coming down from heaven. Or or you think of Elijah confronting Ahab after he killed innocent Naboth. Uh, People know Elijah's ministry well because it was big and public and dramatic. Well, not too many people are familiar with much of Elisha's ministry. If you were to ask the average Christian, uh, tell me something that Elisha did, many people wouldn't really know uh, what were miracles or works that Elisha performed. They know he existed. Uh, most Christians know he was a prophet that came after Elijah. But for many, that's, that's about all 
we know. Well, one of the reasons for this is because Elisha's ministry, in many ways, is a private ministry. A ministry that was performed behind closed doors. Elijah did most of his work in public. Elisha does most of his work in private. Uh, There are a few exceptions where he ministers to kings or uh, you think of how he healed Naaman the Syrian. So there are some moments where he steps out into the big picture. But most of his work and most of his ministry was done behind closed doors. It wasn't there for everyone to see. And that means that often he doesn't get the attention that he should. Well, we, we want to make sure that we as part of the church, do pay attention to Elisha's ministry. Even though it's quiet, private ministry, it's ministry directed precisely to people such as us, the church of God. So let's turn then to our text. We see in verse 1 it says, The wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Well, here we are introduced for a second time in Second Kings to this small community of believers that goes by the name the Sons of the Prophets. Uh, you can see them in chapter 2 as well. And this is a group that we want to be paying attention to. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about this group, but we do know that there was a community of them that go by this name, the Sons of the Prophets, in just about every city in Israel. And by community, I mean at least a hundred of them, probably more. Uh, In chapter 2, we we see one in Bethel, and we see another one in Jericho. In Jericho, it says at least 50 of them went out to follow Elijah and Elisha to the banks of the Jordan. And then later, another 50 of them are sent off to go look for Elijah, uh, which tells me that there were substantially more than 50, probably well over 100 of them. And that's just in Jericho. We see again a community in Bethel. And then later in chapter 4, we go to Gilgal, where we find a community of at least 100, it says so. And that's just in Gilgal. So what we see then is, is there's a substantial group of people in every Israelite city that goes by this name, the Sons of the Prophets. Well, here's my suggestion for how we should think about this group. There's too many of them in every city for them to be full-time prophets. So don't think of them as, as prophets or even as prophets in training. Instead, we should be thinking of them as simply disciples of Elijah and Elisha. In that sense, they are sons of the prophets. Uh, in other words, this is the church, the church of God, within the country of Israel. See, most of Israel had already forsaken the Lord, but we, if you remember from 1 Kings 19, the Lord says, 7,000 people are still here that have not bowed the knee to Baal. That is what this group called the Sons of the Prophets uh, should be thought of. These are the, the church. This is the church of God, the people who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And that's why we really want to pay attention to this group. We often wrongly think that in the Old Testament, the covenant people were were the people of Israel, and in the New Covenant, the covenant people is is the church. And that's a wrong way to divide things. In, In the Old Testament, too, there was a church 
within the nation of Israel. Now, God had made covenant promises to the nation as a whole, but God had a special relationship with the church, with believers. And those who were not part of that church were covenant breakers. They were breaking the covenant by not loving and fearing and serving the Lord. And so we we would be mistaken to think that the church is only a New Testament reality. In fact, our catechism even says this. The Lord Jesus, from the beginning of history to the end, has been gathering, defending, and preserving His church. So the church has been there all along. And it's a smaller category than just the covenant people of of Israel. And and so when the nation of Israel then went off and and abandoned the Lord to serve God, God was there still preserving the small community that we get to know about by the name the Sons of the Prophets. It would be fascinating to know know, what all went on in that community. we, we only get small little glimpses of, of community life within the church of that day. We can see that they, they gathered together regularly. You can see that in chapter 2. You can see it at the end of this chapter as well. And presumably when they gathered together, they probably did much the same things that we do. They would have heard the word of God. They would have sung songs. They would have prayed together. And they would have devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching Sort of a lot like what you find in Acts chapter 2 when 3,000 people are, are, are baptized and added to the church and the first thing they do is they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, to the breaking of bread, and to fellowship. Well, what I find so, so amazing about this, besides, besides just the fact of God's faithfulness in preserving a church, but what's also amazing is that for most of church history, we really don't know a whole lot about what life was like within the church. Uh, very little has been recorded. Very few records have, have survived. For most of history, uh, the church has been so small and, and so underground that most of those stories are lost to history forever. And, and when we, but when we do get occasional glimpses, like we do here, into the life and faith of the church, we see the exact same faith that we share today in the same love for the Lord that we also have. Uh, I listened recently to a a talk about the church father, Ignatius. Uh, He was the third pastor in Antioch after uh, after Peter, assuming, we don't know for sure, but assuming that Peter himself was pastor in Antioch. That's what the church fathers uh, tell us. And the amazing thing about Ignatius is that we know almost nothing about this man. The only reason we even know he existed is because he was arrested to be thrown to the lions, and on the way to Rome, he wrote a bunch of letters and, and passed them to, to the churches. And if it wasn't for those letters, we never would have even heard of him. A man, a pastor, taken off, thrown to the lions, ministering to the church, who we could very easily have never even heard of. And undoubtedly, there are many hundreds of church fathers just like him, who we don't even get to know. In fact, even, even his letters, we don't actually have copies of his letters. Uh, the church fathers quoted them so often that we're able to piece them back together just from the quotes. So if the church fathers hadn't even quoted him, we still wouldn't have ever recovered uh, those letters. And, and that's true for so much of church history. Most of the names and the congregations and the stories and the struggles of faith are lost 
in obscurity. Of course, they're recorded in God's books, and we'll discover many of these stories when we come uh, to heaven. But most of them here on earth are lost. I think we're going to get some amazing church history lessons when we get to heaven and we discover these, these fellow brothers and sisters in the faith and we learn about what they endured and what they fought for during their time on earth. And so we only get occasional glimpses into the life of the church in history. But when we do, we see believers who love the Lord and the Lord powerfully working in their lives. We see this throughout history. Well, consider what an amazing thing it is that, that you and I, by God's grace, find ourselves part of this community that God has been sustaining for thousands of years, even in times when the church passed through total obscurity, when the world forgot that the church existed. There it was. There God was working. And now, here we are. And in some respects, we, we owe our spiritual life to these people that we've never even heard of, who have passed the faith on through the generations. So all that to say, whenever you read about the sons of the prophets, which we're going to hear about a lot in Second Kings, pay close attention to them, because there you will find the hand of God working in amazing, though quiet, but powerful ways, sustaining faith, providing blessing. And there you find the roots of our own faith, the faith that has been passed on through the generations. So it says this wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, and she says, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my children to be his slaves. Now, it's maybe not surprising that this woman was uh, poor and even in debt because certainly during Ahab's rule, that's the father of the present king, uh, the believers were persecuted for their faith. And they probably would have also faced economic exclusion uh, from, from many of their trades. The trade guilds were often uh, revolved around the worship of those specific gods. And so if you didn't worship Baal, you were excluded from that trade guild. You would have been among the poorest in, in society. And so now it turns out her husband has even died, and it leaves her in a very vulnerable situation. Widows were already marginalized in Israel. How much more widows uh, who were believers now, let me just briefly explain the legal situation here. This woman was left then with her family's debts. And the law in Israel was if you got yourself into debt, uh, and, and it was debt that you couldn't possibly pay back, uh, one way you could get out of it was by uh, selling yourself, or in some cases your children, into a, a temporary form of, of slavery. We call it indentured servitude. And it's, it's like slavery, but it's by agreement, by contract, and for a limited period of time. Now, before you, before you condemn the Israelites for, for having slavery, uh, we should recognize we, we do essentially the same thing even today. People live in slavery to their credit card debt, and they're paying this off year after year, some of them for their entire life. At least in Israel, when you were in over your head, there was a way out of it after a period of time. In fact, at least in Israel, uh, there were, these laws were in place to, to teach you to, to live within your means and to, to develop a work ethic, probably better than our present system of just giving welfare to people who, who choose not to work. I once painted a house for people, and they, they never worked. 
they, they paid me big money, and they just sat inside all day long, every day, doing nothing, living off of government welfare. Well, in Israel, you couldn't do that. Uh, you, you were obliged to pay your debts, but there were ways to make sure that you would eventually get out of debt, and in the meantime, learn a work ethic, and live within your means. So those were the biblical laws which Moses himself had had put in place. But here we see these laws being abused. And we want to recognize this is abuse of of these laws. Uh, The Israelites were strictly commanded not to do this sort of thing to widows and orphans. Uh, they They were commanded to provide for them and to take care of them and to show mercy to them. And you could extend that obviously naturally, to anyone else who, for legitimate reasons, could not work. Uh, So the Israelites were commanded to take care of the poor and the needy. Uh, And furthermore, in Exodus 21, God commands Moses to make sure that this this, uh, indentured servitude would always be for a limited time, a maximum of seven years. You could never be in slavery for longer than seven years. Then the person would have to be set free. Uh, but as it, as it is always in every age, good laws are always subject to abuse. And it's good for us to recognize that. You can't solve social abuses by simply slapping on new laws. Uh, without changed hearts, uh, and what we see in Israel is unchanged hearts, all you get are well-intentioned laws that turn into a means for further abuse. And that's what we see in this widow's case as well. Israel had been commanded to show mercy to widows and orphans. But here we have some creditors saying, no, we're going to hold you to account for your debt, and we're going to take your children into slavery. And it's not at all to be assumed that they were even honoring this this seven-year rule at that time in Israel. So this, this widow then cries out to Elisha. And here in Elisha's response, I want to focus on on what you see here of God's special love and compassion for His own believers, reserved for the church. It's true, we find Elisha ministering occasionally to other people and in other ways, like the king of Israel from time to time, the, the, the commander of Syria's army in, in chapter 5. But for the most part, this is where we find Elisha, in the midst of the church, ministering to God's people, because that's where he belonged. Those were his people. And we see in this God's special love and compassion for his people, for his own church. Well, don't miss this, brothers and sisters. God, It's true, God does show goodness and, and grace to all people on some level, but God's eyes are particularly directed towards the church. Psalm 33, uh, we sang earlier, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love that He may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Psalm 34, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and and saves those crushed in spirit. One more Psalm 147. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. 
Understand this well, brothers and sisters. God has a special love and compassion for those who know Him, love Him, and serve Him, and honor Him with their lives. God's eyes are on them. His heart is for them. And His plans are directed especially for their good. It's what Paul says in Romans 8 as well. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. God has a special compassion for His own people. And and really, if there's one thing that we see standing out in, in all of Elisha's ministry, it's that. It's we see him ministering to, serving, and blessing God's church, God's people, and those who know Him and love Him. Because that's where God had primarily called Him to be. That's the place within the church. That's the place where God's love is poured out in that special, unique, and unparalleled way. God loves those who fear Him. God loves His church. He delights in His church. He cherishes those who believe in Him. He keeps them. Their, their lives matter to Him. And He's deeply acquainted with them. You see that also in Psalm 139. You know my going out and my coming in. Also when they die, He does not let go of them. Psalm 116. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Nothing on earth is more precious to God than the lives and souls of His saints of those who fear Him. And so this widow is one of the believers who has a a special access to God's prophet, Elisha. Kings and generals might get turned away from him. We saw that last time in in chapter 3. He he says to Jehoram, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and mother. But believers, including poor widows and orphans and the sick, they have access to to God, and he hears their cry. And it's important for the deacons to remember this as well. The, the character of God in, in loving the widows and the orphans and the helpless who trust in Him. That's why we have a, an entire office devoted to showing God's compassion towards those who fear Him. And notice, God shows His, his love for saints oftentimes behind closed doors where the world doesn't even have the privilege of of getting to see it. Uh, Don't miss the secrecy of this whole event. Elisha tells the widow, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few, and then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons, and then pour into all those vessels. And that's what the widow did. It says in verse 5, she went from him, and, and then she got the vessels, and she shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. Well, sometimes it happens that God allows His, his power and His might to be on display to the whole world. It happens in history. You see that in the ministry of Elijah. But more often, indeed far more often, God's power, God's might is on display in the privacy of the lives and homes of those who love Him. He works powerfully, but the world doesn't get the privilege of seeing it. See, God is not a show-off. God is not interested in simply showing how powerful He is to people who don't fear Him. It's true He sometimes does that 
in history. But more often than not, God works miraculously and powerfully through angels, healings, and miracles in the privacy of the lives of believers for their encouragement, comfort, and to minister to their needs. And some of you I know have have witnessed this in, in your own lives. Some of you also know those who have genuine miracles, indeed diseases, cancers even, disappearing, angels, healings, God working in in mighty ways in the privacy of your own lives. And God does that for your good as those who love Him and fear Him. God doesn't do it to impress the world. Sometimes there's a time and place for speaking to the world about the things that God has done, but more often than not, God gives those for us to hold on to them, to treasure them, and to know that He cares for us. And it's not there for the world to see. That brings me then to to the second point here, which is essentially the flip side of the first point, and that is the, the sphere of faith in which God's love is received and experienced. The flip side to God's special compassion for His church is His church's special trust and faith in Him. God loves those who fear Him, and it's through that fearing of Him, that that heartfelt trust and reverence for God, it's through that that the love of God is experienced and received. It, It works both ways. God loves those who fear Him. Those who fear Him will experience His love. Uh, There are two sides of the same coin. God's love is poured out on those who have faith in Him, and it's by having faith in Him that you receive it poured out on you. And we see that in this, in this short account of the widow's oil. I wonder, did you, did you find Elisha's response to this widow a little surprising? I certainly did. His initial response to her is, is what am I supposed to do for you? And you might interpret that as a sign of, of confusion or weakness on Elisha's part, and it might be, but it's also possible that he was asking this simply to highlight and to marvel at this woman's faith. The Lord Jesus would often do the same sort of thing, and we saw that in, in the reading that we also read. Or Take uh, Mark 10, uh, verse 46. As, it says, As Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd... Uh, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it says, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped him and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, "Take take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, it says he sprang and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? It's kind of obvious what this blind man wanted him to do. And the blind man could have said, well, Rabbi, look at me. What do you think I want? But instead, he he asks Jesus to heal him. And Jesus says to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and went on his way. Jesus took the time to stop him in his tracks so he would tell the whole world, this is what I expect from you, Jesus. And then Jesus gave it, just to marvel at this man's faith. Uh, You see the same thing in Matthew 9. Two blind men come after Jesus, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. And 
And when Jesus enters the house that they're going to, they entered after him and he turned around and said to them, do you believe that I can do this for you? Well, obviously they did. That's why they were crying out to him. But Jesus takes the time to stop them just so that they can tell the whole world, yes, we do believe. And Jesus stops and just marvels at their faith and then heals them. I think we see some of the same thing here in in, uh, the story of this widow. Elisha, by his question, I think is simply marveling at this woman's faith. What do you want me to do for you? Though he already knows what he wants her to do. Most of Israel no longer believed that Elisha could do this or that God was able to do this thing. This is why they were turning after Baal. But here's a, a, a widow in a desperate situation with seemingly, humanly speaking, no hope at all. And she turns to the prophet knowing, confident that he can help her because he's backed up with the power of the Lord Most High and the Lord is powerful. She probably didn't even know how he was going to help her, but he knew that through God's power, he could. And we should be careful not to overlook that kind of faith. We should take the time too, just as Elisha does, just as the Lord Jesus does, to marvel at this kind of faith. Because such faith, both then and now, is a rarity in our world. How often do we meet even even believers that have that same deep, instinctual level of trust, knowing that God can do whatever they ask of Him? In our Western culture, it's, it's sad, but we often dismiss this kind of faith. We even treat it as, as sort of naive. And sadly, that attitude can even exist within the church, where a brother or sister who's terminally sick or ill uh, is never encouraged to pray for healing, never encouraged to pray that God would work a miracle where that's precisely what they should be praying. In fact, in James 5, uh, James tells us we should be praying for these things. Now, we we recognize, of course, God doesn't always heal in response to our prayers. Sometimes God has better plans, and we can't know God's, God's purposes. God has His reasons. But to ask is simply the exercise of faith. And we're encouraged in Scripture, Old and New Testament, to be asking for God to do mighty things in our lives. God is able to heal I've sometimes heard it uh, that, that people uh, give God's sovereignty as a good reason not to pray. They'll, they'll say, oh, I don't pray about that because I know God is sovereign. He's going to do what He's going to do anyways. So I, I trust in Him so much that I don't even pray about it. Well, that makes no sense. It's, it's backwards thinking. Those who trust in God's sovereign providence will pray. He's able to heal both our bodies and our minds, and He's able to change the hearts also of loved ones who don't know Him or don't love Him. And the response of faith, knowing that that God is able to heal, able to act, the response of faith has always been to ask Him to act. In, In fact, it's precisely through our prayers and in response to our prayers that God says He is pleased to act. And so what we see here is is just a glimpse of of the faith that was alive in this small community of believers known as the sons of the prophets. They knew God's power and they trusted in God's providence. And we're going to see this again a number of times in, in 2 Kings.
And we see the widow's faith then in her response to Elisha's command. See, Elisha could have just provided the oil for her, but notice how he he uses the instrument of faith to obtain that oil. Uh, This is why I repeat, God, God loves those who fear Him, and it's in fearing Him and trusting in Him that you will experience God's love. This believing woman and her sons still had to go out and get those jars of oil. Elisha could have just put it there, but he says, no, I want you to go out and get the jars, and the Lord will fill them. Uh, no doubt the neighbors would have had some, some strange questions as they see this woman gathering up uh, all these jars. Uh, we don't get to, to see how all of that unfolded. But what we see is that she obeyed in faith, believing that God, through his prophet, was going to honor what he said he would do. And God blessed her and her sons by means of her faith. And you could even say in proportion uh, to her faith. Uh, because as many jars as she collected, that's how much oil she received. Now, you could look at that negatively, and some theologians do this. I saw this in the commentaries as I was studying this, uh, where they, they say, Oh man, if only she had gathered more jars, she would have ended up with, with more oil. And that may be true. It might also be the case that she emptied the neighborhood of every available jar. Uh, we simply don't know. We can only speculate But instead of focusing on on how much more she might have obtained if she had collected more jars, I think we're supposed to look at it the other way. Consider how much oil she did receive because of her great faith to go out and collect as many jars as she did. It's an amazing act of faith, a true rarity, uh, both in her time and, and ours, to go out to her neighbors on this act of faith and to collect these jars, knowing that God was going to do what he said he would do. She believed God's word and acted on it. Well, I said in, in the beginning of the sermon that Elisha's ministry has a lot to teach us about the Lord Jesus' ministry. I might point out that the Lord Jesus also spent a good deal of his time ministering to widows and orphans. This was also a special uh, compassion that the Lord Jesus showed in his ministry. But even even more relevant here, I think, is, is the distinct love that Jesus also showed to those who were faithful in Israel, to those who trusted in him. His special love for believers and their children. And the way that the Lord Jesus so often used their faith as a means to their blessing. He, he so often says, you hear it over and over, go, your faith has made you well. The Lord Jesus delights to use our faith as a means to our blessing. Do you see the Lord Jesus' compassion on His children, on His own believers for whom He has a special love? In fact, once in, in Matthew and, and twice in Mark and, and three times in Luke, the Lord Jesus is recorded uttering those words, your faith has made you well. And, and there's numerous other times where he marvels. He just stops and, and marvels at the faith of those who ask things of him, both within Israel, but even more often, those who believed in him outside of Israel. He, he marvels and says, in Israel, you don't find this kind of faith. Well, the Lord Jesus said it so often during His ministry concerning faith that to him who has, more 
shall be given. But to him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It was a warning to Israel, but it's also an encouragement to those within Israel and outside of Israel who would choose to believe in him. Our Lord Jesus Christ treasures the faith of those who trust in him. He delights in it and he uses it as a means to blessing. So just as, just as in Elisha's time, faith means believing in the word of God from the prophet whom God has sent. And in our time, that prophet is most especially the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Faith is a relationship with Christ where we believe what he says and we know that he means it also for us. We know that he has a special compassion and love for us. It also means joining the company of believers, just as they did in that time, with each community of the sons of the prophets in each city. It also means choosing to be counted with God's people instead of being counted with the world. To accept afflictions and persecutions, as this widow probably did, instead of accepting the privileges and luxuries of the world. And when those afflictions come, faith also means crying out to the one who is the Word of God Himself, the Lord Jesus, and the one whose name means, just like Elisha, my God saves. Not only believing that He can save us in in that particular affliction, but even more, trusting that whatever the result, He has us securely in His hands, and He never lets go of those who love Him and who He also loves. So faith puts itself under God's word where it finds its comfort and its hope. And it looks to the Savior that God sends. So brothers and sisters, let's also be humble. Let's be ready to learn from the faith of this poor widow. Let's see it and let's emulate it. Let's learn from it. And since the the greater Elisha has come in our time, the one whom Elisha was only foreshadowing, let us then all the more cultivate and exercise a deep, constant faith in him, knowing that he not only delights in that faith and, and cherishes that faith, but also promises to use that faith as an instrument of our blessing and our healing, even in the daily affairs of our lives, to bring us Blessing beyond what we can even imagine in relationship with Him. And then in eternity to take us with Him forever. That is faith in the greater Elisha. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 116, stanzas 7 through 10.